Once again this morning, I invite you to come with me to the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. We'll read that text and a couple of others. And this has been a different message series, whereas typically we do expositional preaching in the sense of starting the beginning of a book, preaching until we've reached the end. This has been more theological preaching as we've talked about the matter of worship together. And so let's begin where we've begun in each one. John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 23 and 24. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And if you want to hold on to that spot there, then come over a little further to the book of Acts, the second chapter. Acts 2, verse 1, just that first verse. Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. You see that phrase, together in one place. And you read in those early chapters, it'll talk about them being together and of one mind, or the old King James way of saying it, in one accord. If you stay there in Acts and go over to the 14th chapter, Acts chapter 14 at verse 24 and they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And then that 27th verse, and when they arrived and gathered the church together. Note that phrase, gathered the church together. The church was the church even when it wasn't gathered, but there was a time when the church gathered. They declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And then another that is less happy in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, but in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now that's a lovely assessment, isn't it? <laughs> for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together as a church. The whole series of messages, delighting in God is how we theme this, has been my hope for you to see worship as an opportunity to delight in the Lord. It is once again to me such a, an encouraging statement from the now deceased theologian, Dr. Packer, who says that worship is the deliberate, the intentional lifting of one's eyes 
from man and his mistakes to contemplate God in his glory. There's an intentionality in what we're to do. Now, today, in this final message, I want to talk about what it's like to participate in corporate gathered worship. By the way, this will not be a review or assessment of how you did this morning. I don't think I'm qualified for that. But our own preferences, our own dispositions, our emotions, and our sentimentalities really impact how we view worship. And sometimes we don't even recognize it. Bob Coughlin, in his book, Worship Matters, tells uh, this story. He said, I heard once of a Christian woman who had spent time serving God in South Africa. While visiting a health clinic, she was deeply moved by the sound of the local Zulu women singing. Their harmonies were hauntingly beautiful. With tears in her eyes, she asked a friend if she knew the translation of the words. Sure, her friend replied. You ready? If you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. Now, if that doesn't make you want to worship, what does? We, we let emotion at times drive us. And there are times we're almost too self-conscious. And I'm not encouraging thoughtless worship. And D.A. Carson says this way, although there are things that can be done to enhance corporate worship, there's a profound sense in which excellent worship cannot be attained merely by pursuing excellent worship. In, say, the way that according to Jesus, you can't find yourself until you lose yourself, so you really can't find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. Sometimes we wonder if we're beginning to pursue, or excuse me, beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. It's a bit like the fellow who begins admiring sunsets, and then before he knows it, he's admiring himself, admiring the sunsets. Usually with a selfie stick. Our purpose is to establish a biblical, Christ-centered view of worship. Now, I've not mentioned this before, but historically, the church in Protestantism has viewed worship through one of two lenses and certain uh, gradations among them. One has been called the regulative principle of worship, and the other, the normative principle. The regulative principle is to worship God truly is to worship Him in the manner which He Himself has prescribed. And it tends to only do the things specifically commanded in Scripture. And there is something about that, my friends, and I would say that overall, I would consider us a regulative worship church. Because if you're not careful, you end up changing things 
haphazardly and possibly dangerously. Now there's another principle, the normative principle, which God should be worshipped in the manner prescribed in Scripture, which may include other aspects, as long as they're not prohibited by Scripture, nor disturb the peace or unity of the church. Now historically, Presbyterians, other Reformed churches, Baptists, have typically subscribed to some form of the regulative principle, Lutherans and Anglicans to some version of the normative principle, but I'm going to tell you that Baptist churches anymore, you're not sure what principle they are using to define and describe worship. Um, one brother some years ago told about visiting Cross Trails Church in an unnamed, I will not name it, community in Texas. Here was their Ten Commandments. Just one God. Honor your ma and pa. No telling tales or gossiping. Get yourself to Sunday meeting. Put nothing before God. No fooling around with another fellow's gal. No killing. Watch your mouth. Don't take what ain't yours. Don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. Baptisms were formed out of a horse trough. And the song of benediction, happy trails to you. I wish I were joking. Now, the brother who notes this went on to say, what's next? A skateboarder's church? A valley girl's church? And I'm afraid if you look far enough, you might find them. What happened to the unity of the saints? What happened to our doctrine, what we believe, driving how we worship. Now just as a reminder, and for those who have not been here, our first message we considered this. Worship must be practiced in Christ to be true worship. It's only as we have Christ as living water that we worship. And that's why we launched from John chapter 4. It, it struck me this morning in a very powerful way that all of our talk about worship that's so much centered on this account in the Gospels is between the Lord Jesus and an immoral, unjustified woman excluded even in her own culture, in her own society. And that private conversation turns into definitive answers in many ways for all Christians from that time forward. The Lord does wondrous things with very messed up people. Led me down another trail. I was reminded of D.L. Moody preaching in England. The newspapers were absolutely destroying him. They talked about how ignorant he was and how poor, poorly he spoke the king's English. And so to respond to that, Moody stood before the congregation one evening with the newspaper in his hand and that bold headline, and he said, Isn't it extraordinary what a mighty blow God can strike with a crooked stick? Which made me think something else. All God's tools are flawed. Every last one of us. 
God does mighty things with far less than mighty people. He does extraordinary things. So we considered must be in Christ. Secondly, we practice new covenant worship. That was the second message. A change in locations. No temple except Christ and His church. A change in mediators. No priests except Christ and His church. No, uh, no specific practice in terms of no sacrifices except what Christ does in sacrifice. Thirdly, that Christ makes us worshipers. The third message individually and as a community last time we considered a life of worship always comes out of a transformed life and now today as we consider what it is to gather for worship um, that danger of pursuing worship for the sake of worship rather than pursuing the lord really strikes home doesn't it The Puritan George Swannock, in exhorting Christians to worship, said it this way, Prepare to meet thy God, O Christian. How pleasant and profitable a Lord's Day would be to thee after such preparation. The oven of thine heart. You follow the imagery? The oven of thine heart. Thus baked in, as it were, overnight, would be easily heated the next morning. The fire so well raked up when thou wentest to bed would be the sooner kindled when thou shouldst rise. If thou wouldst thus leave thine heart with God on Saturday night, thou shouldst find it with Him on the Lord's day morning. Mm hmm Preparation. So what is it that we are to do when we come together? The crisis, my friends, is we expect our preferences to define and drive worship when the Scripture shouts to us that Christianity is word-driven. So our worship is word-driven. The Lord didn't send us a video. He sent us the Word made flesh. God has spoken. I know people say, well, we live in a very video age, and you should get on board with being a very video age. And I want to say, and look what the video age has rendered. When the church gives up being word-driven, in particular in worship, the outcomes are not God-glorifying, nor are they beneficial to the church. So what are we to do? This is going to be a very complicated outline today. I say that tongue-in-cheek, all right? Very simply this. We are to read the Word, sing the Word, Pray the Word, preach the Word, and see the Word. We are to read the Word. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, 
Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Carving out time on Sunday morning to read the Scripture. To hear what God has said. This is seen in much of what we do on Sunday mornings. It makes a statement about the value we place on God's Word. You see, our call to worship is to emphasize the Lord calling us to Himself. Now, we can't do this every Sunday, although I'm tempted at times. The 95th Psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then down to the sixth verse. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That is the call in the call to worship. It is to help us take our minds off of everything else. And to think about why we are here. In Latin, that psalm is called Venite. O come. We sing a version of it every year at Christmas. Venite adoremus. Venite adoremus. Venite adoremus, Dominum. Now, we don't sing it like that because we're Baptists. Oh, come, let us adore him. Do you understand? That shouldn't just be the song of the Nativity, that is the song of the church gathered by his word. It's seen in the response of reading. And I've had people at times say, well, why do you do that? Because what God says matters more than anything anybody else says. And it's good for you to say what God says. And it's good for you to hear what God says. So how about that? How about we do that? We say it. We hear it. We respond to it antiphonally. We are speaking God's Word. The Word read. God has spoken. That's of eternal importance. Seen in the preaching. It shows up in all sorts of things we do. Read the Word. Secondly, sing the Word. Now we caught that in Colossians 3. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, very much like Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so we tend to take so much for granted, but keep in mind that until the Protestant Reformation, the church didn't sing as a congregation. They heard other people sing, they didn't sing. And part of what came out of the Reformation was the church singing together. Active participation. Singing 
is us giving praise to God, and it is us encouraging one another. Now, I know some of you just immediately said, if you ever heard me sing, you'd know I'm not encouraging anybody. Brothers and sisters, this is not about ability. This is about intent. Now, I'm going to give you a little practical application here. Those of you that can carry a tune, okay, that more or less hit the same notes that Nathan does, within reason, okay, as he leads us, you should sing loudly. I'll try it over here. Those who can sing should sing loudly. You should let your voice be heard. Now, that's not so people go, ooh, wow, I didn't know they could sing. No, you're serving your brothers and sisters who don't sing so well by giving them cover. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. For some of you, the awfulest thing in the whole wide world would be somebody actually hear your voice singing. And I'm going to encourage you to do it anyway. But I'm going to encourage those of you who can to sing. To engage. To encourage those who may not sing as well. Now, of course, the question always comes up, what about style? Should it be ancient? Gregorian chant, antiphonal, choirs. What about instruments? Piano, a cappella, organ, guitar, drums. Let me say this as bluntly as I can. Overall, the style of the music is really one of the least important factors when it comes to worship and praising God. The chief purpose of singing is to praise and bless the name of the Lord and to convey a sense of active participation for the congregation, something that had previously been absent before the Reformation. Singing achieved, now listen to these words, singing achieved the vertical dimension of praise and the horizontal dimension of mutual edification. That is, my friend, it's not just so you cover for one another that you sing, it's that you and I encourage one another. That is part of what happens here. It encourages one another. See, that's why if, if Doug ever has the opportunity to be involved in the design of an auditorium, it's going to be wraparound. So that the folks singing over here are aimed toward the folks singing over there and vice versa. We are to hear one another. The style should be a matter that has to do more with, I would say, cultural setting than anything else. Now, there's some music, obviously, that won't work for adult praise. The children's song, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, is fine, but it doesn't evoke a sense of the glory of God for adults. Now, it won't hurt you. Not sure it helps. 
In another vein, tunes do matter. You can sing Amazing Grace to the tune of the theme from Gilligan's Island. Now, some of you are sitting there working that out right now. I shouldn't have said it. I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. My friends, we want to help rather than hinder to appreciate and celebrate God's glory, Christ's cross, the hope of heaven, and other glorious truths. Do you understand there's nothing new about controversies about music and church and instrumentation? I, I shared this with the community group the other night, and I know I've said it here. Early on, when Baptists in the late 1600s, uh, early 1700s, were first beginning to sing some hymns by that crazy radical Isaac Watts, They, they put them at the end of the service, really after the benediction, because they weren't, they'd always sung before that psalms and psalms only. And what happened was when the brother introduced these songs, there were certain men in the congregation, they took their hats off when they came into worship. But when they started singing those hymns, they put their hats back on because you didn't have to show respect for those things. That sounds very Baptistic to me. Not in a good way. But there it is. One brother, in fact, I found this reference in 1860, the Reverend David Benedict, fat pastor of First Baptist Pawtucket, Rhode Island, had approved of placing of an organ in the church. And then he went on to say, how far this modern organ fever will extend among our people. And whether it will on the whole work a reformation or deformation in their singing service, time will more fully develop. There was a controversy of all things over having an organ. The primary driver in what we sing should be content. Let us sing the word. The secondary driver should be its friendliness to congregational singing. Third should be styles. My friends, there's so much good sound worship music. And we need each other to sing this part together. Listen to these words from Matt Merker. The church member enduring persecution from his earthly family needs to hear his spiritual brothers and sisters sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. The Christian burdened by shame needs to hear us exult. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Our weary hearts long to hear the gospel reverberate around us in surround sound. We hear the voices of our fellow church members. Remember that we're, we remember we're not in this alone. God has welcomed us into the family. So, Read the Word, speak the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word. The church at Jerusalem, when persecuted, lifted up their voices in prayer. Acts chapter 4, and it was rich with scriptural content. The quotation is from the second psalm. We're to pray for civil leaders. We are, according to 1 Timothy 2, we're supposed to pray for the sick. James chapter 5. We should pray for spiritual maturity and depth. Sometimes I think we wonder what to pray for, and the models in Ephesians are praying for one another to grow in our knowledge and understanding of what God has done for us and in us because we're dense. 
And we need Him. My friends, you you don't need, the biggest need in your life right now is not God to explain to you the specifics of what you're going through. You and I think that's the biggest thing we need when we're struggling. We want God to answer the question. Your biggest need, my biggest need, is not that explanation. My biggest need, your biggest need, is that you and I would see the greatness of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Because that would make the other things insignificant in comparison we are to pray the word prayer is the mark of our helplessness on occasion folks say you guys pray a lot in your service we do without apology we're talking to him we're worshiping him We are coming to Him. And my friend, if that bores you, hear what I'm about to say. You need to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're bored with praying, I'm worried about you. I'm not saying there aren't times it takes a little work to focus. It can. Pray the Word. Read the Word. Sing the Word. Pray the Word preach the word now some of you are nervous because the preacher is going to talk about preaching the word and he's already been at it a long time how long is it going to take here i have purposely limited what i say here second timothy 4 i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who's the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming When people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What's the first exhortation? Preach the word. When the apostles... See, the first crisis in the early church. You remember the first big internal problem they had? Had some widows got mad at one another. And what was their answer? They didn't ignore it. You appoint some men to do this. And remember what they said? It would be wrong for us to depart from the preaching of the word to handle this. You select men who will do this. We'll give ourselves to the ministry of the word and of prayer. Christianity is word-driven. God spoke and the world was created. God's Son, the word made flesh, came among us. We do preaching, and preaching is central to what we do, and it takes up the biggest portion many times of the entire service, and there is a reason for that. We need to hear and heed what God has said. We need to understand it. We need to apply it. We need to lay hold of it. My brothers and sisters, I'll say this. I still hear this far too often. Thankfully, our seminaries, our seminaries, are not doing this foolishness anymore. But over and over again, what I hear is shorter sermons, shorter sermons, 15 minutes. People don't have an attention span beyond 15 minutes. My friend, your attention span is only partly my problem. 
it is also yours. I know, say, well, people fail, fail to hear it all. Well, there was a fellow in the book of Acts who struggled with that late one night. Eutychus. You remember Eutychus? You ought not sit near a window. You notice we got the windows up high here. Folks, I'm not talking about abusing people's time. But when you're dealing with the matter of the eternal word of God, preaching should be thorough enough to cover the text properly. It needs to be biblical, expositional, theological. It should cover the entirety of Scripture. Preach the Word. That's why we do what we do here. Finally, we read the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word. Finally, we see the Word. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. You see the Word. What do I mean, see the Word? What is baptism? It is the signal of a new life begun. It is the signal of an old life left behind. It is the declaration of a new allegiance. It is the declaration of treachery toward the old allegiance. It is entrance outwardly to the people of God. It is the declaration, I am in union with Jesus Christ. His death for me. His burial for me. His resurrection for me. And I am with Him in all those things. In fact, I'm also with Him as He is seated in heavenly places. So we see Romans 6 when we do baptism. We see the new birth. We see union with Christ. We see the Word. When we take the Lord's table together, we see the Word. What do we see? We see His promise. We see Christ in the cross we see the glorious declaration, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall have my life in him, shall live forever. Not that somehow mystical things happen in this, but the symbol declares what the Word says. This is my body which is for you. This cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of the sins of many. Oh, my brothers and sisters, when we gather out of the realities of Christ who has come, that we live under the terms of this glorious new covenant that makes us truly children of God, not merely outwardly, but inwardly, we're His. As we rejoice to know we're part of a people who worships, and we worship individually, and that the Lord is transforming every single one of His children. Christian, you're being transformed. 
It may be slow. You may not see all of it. That's all right. It doesn't depend on your perception. It depends on His promise. He is transforming you, making you more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And then when we gather, it's not all of us in this room having our private devotional time together. Okay? It's us together as the gathered church, specifically that which comprises Boulevard Baptist Church, along with guests, friends, others that are part of the body of Christ from elsewhere. We gather here and we gather, my friends, to do this together because our Lord commands us to do that and further because we have found that in this obedience there is good to our souls and there is glory to God. So, when it comes time to read the Word, dear member of Boulevard, hear me, read the Word. When it is time to pray, pray. I know somebody gets up here to pray. Listen to what they're saying and agree with it. And when it's done, it's okay to say aloud, amen. It won't hurt, I promise. Sing the word. Well, I'm not very good. I don't care if you're very good. Sing. Open your mouth and let it come out. Learn the words. Do the best you can with it. But let's sing praise to God. And remember, my friend, as you do these things, you're doing it not just to the Lord, but to encourage one another. In the preaching of the Word, hear what is said. Listen. Ask the Lord to open your mind and heart to receive it well and let it go down deep. Some of you struggle with having a devotional life all week. You think, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to do this. I'm just so struggling with this. Let me let you in on a little secret. The early church had no Bibles. They meditated on what they heard, taught, and preached. You don't have an excuse. Take what you hear on Sunday. Let that be your meditation for the week. Believe me, my friend, there's more than enough in the text of any given sermon for you to meditate on for a week. Amen. That's a good place for one, by the by. Just throw that out there. See the Word. Christian, you ought to be here. You ought to be here for all those things, but especially it should be the joy of your heart to see a new Christian baptized. And it ought to be the joy and hunger of your heart to be here every time the Lord's table is offered. Folks, you understand what we do in that action is one thing that continues through eternity as we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We commune with Him. My beloved family, may we worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we give it our attention because we're giving Him our attention and we're giving one another our attention. Not to be seen, 
but to encourage. May those things drive us in word, Christocentric worship. Let's pray.